Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories of the week really didn't make any side happy, but we did get a little bit of closure for the family of Eric Garner. After five years of investigations and protests, the New York City Police Department fired the officer that was involved in the 2014 chokehold death of Eric Garner. Obviously, everybody has seen the video, knows the dying gasps of Eric Garner. We're saying, I can't breathe. This is really what sparked a big debate over use of force by police. It was also a big part of the Black Lives Matter movement. The police commissioner, James P. O'Neill, dismissed Pantaleo two weeks after the police administrative judge found him guilty violating a department ban on chokeholds. If you remember, Eric Garner was outside of his storefront. He was confronted by police officers for selling loose, untaxed cigarettes. They called them Lucy's. And everything kind of devolved from there. In the press conference, James P. O'Neill said that it is clear that Daniel Pantaleo can no longer effectively serve as a New York City police officer. Victor, start us off with some reaction to this decision. Uh, well, I mean, the reaction really depends on who you're talking to. Eric Garner's daughter, Emerald Snipes Garner, thanked Commissioner O'Neill for, quote, doing the right thing. She later went on to say, I should not be here standing with my brother fatherless. Uh, he's fired, but the fight is not over. And Al Sharpton, who has made a comment, also said Pantaleo will go home a terminated man, but this family had to go to a funeral. And Al Sharpton said this too. The people who wanted Pantaleo to be fired are more relieved than celebratory. They're relatively happy with the decision, but they're not jumping for joy at what exactly happened. Interesting comments also came from the president of the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, that's the police union, Patrick Lynch. This had to deal with how police officers would feel after this decision. He basically told everybody that police officers feel like the commissioner doesn't have their back anymore. It's also important to note that people who are part of the union think that this is more of a political move than an actual justice move, especially with Mayor de Blasio running for president in the upcoming election. They think that there's a lot of pressure that was put on O'Neill to make this decision to eventually fire Pantaleo. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of outcry. And uh, James O'Neill, the commission, police commissioner, he even sounded like he struggled with it also. He said, if I were still a cop, I would probably be mad at me too. But he said this was the right decision, especially after the uh, investigation that the police did. Uh, the judge ruled that he used an illegal chokehold. And that's where really everything around this is centered. Here's James O'Neill talking about how things devolved and, and that chokehold specifically. The person videotaping the episode later testified at the NYPD trial that he thought both men would crash through the glass. It is at that point in the video that Officer Pantaleo is seen with his hands clasped together and his left forearm pressed against Mr. Garner's neck in what constitutes a chokehold. The NYPD court ruled that while certainly not preferable, that hold was acceptable during that brief moment in time because the risk of falling through the window was so high. 
But that exigent circumstance no longer existed, the court found, when Officer Pantaleo and Mr. Garner moved to the ground. So it's all about the chokehold. That's obviously what triggered the asthma attack that Eric Garner had where, where he later died. Through the uh, investigation, they said that Pantaleo initially tried to use two approved restraint tactics on Garner, eventually wrapping his arm around his neck for about seven seconds when they struggled in front of that glass window and then they fell to the floor. But that's when, I don't know if he readjusted or in the shuffle, that's when the chokehold went right up against his neck. Pantaleo's lawyer said that he tried to use a, a tactic known as the seatbelt maneuver. What, what does that look like, Victor? Yeah, well, I think first it's important to note that, A, the issue with the chokehold wasn't with the initial grabbing. It's the minute they got on the ground is when he didn't move to a more safer procedure of right. restraining him. The New York Times did a video with a retired police officer on proper takedown techniques. The seatbelt method is under the arm, up through the shoulder. Right. So... Right arm, left shoulder, and you restrain them that way. Yeah, and you bring them down to the ground. And exactly. the video does show that it started off that way. But as you said, once they hit the ground and they, in the struggle, it quickly moved to uh, being a chokehold around his neck. And that, that unfortunately, is what did it all. And in that video that I was talking about, every illegal way of restraining someone was right around the trachea, right around the right. neck. And every good way of doing it was chest shoulder leg yeah. issues so you don't put pressure on the critical breathing parts of a person of a, a suspect or something exactly the police union and the lawyers for officer pantaleo said that they're going to appeal this they're going to try to get his job back i mean it's a tough situation how does that guy ever really go back into the field and and be an effective police officer uh, you know everybody knows who he is uh but that that's what they said they're going to be doing thank you victor Thank you. One of the top political stories of the week has to do with the fight that President Trump was having with Denmark over the sale of Greenland. The president decided to call off a state trip to Denmark after being told that Greenland is not for sale by the prime minister. The prime minister of Denmark called the idea absurd and President Trump countered by saying that her statement was nasty. For more on the story, we spoke to Marisa Fernandez. She's a reporter at Axios for how this whole thing got started. This all began last week when the Wall Street Journal got wind of President Trump instructing his advisors to explore whether it was possible to purchase Greenland. And that idea started for strategic military purposes as well as Greenland's natural resources base with the trip coming up in September. Now, this whole development um, that happened this week with the whole he said she said storyline it's an all too familiar news cycle in the trump administration right like x topic leaks from the white house president trump then confirms it when asked by the press and then a firestorm of reactions follow and this time it just happens to be 
from current and former Danish politicians who, for the majority of them, had tweeted out various reactions earlier on Tuesday and Wednesday and not too kind things about the president. One politician said that Trump, quote, lived on another planet and is disrespectful. Another politician said that his behavior reminded him of a spoiled child. So now we see President Trump on Wednesday kind of on defense. And so I think that was the idea he was trying to make to turn it on the prime minister to say he was insulted that she said that his idea was absurd. And he really, really hung on to that term quite a bit at the press pool he had on the South Lawn on Wednesday. It seems that this whole story is kind of absurd, even the way the Wall Street Journal had positioned it in their in their article was that he was maybe half serious. He was just kind of inquiring. And now he's kind of let this become the discussion. I think it was a former finance minister for Denmark had said that this has gone from a great opportunity for strength and dialogue between two allies to a diplomatic crisis. I guess this has been kind of floated around twice before. President Harry Truman offered $100 million for Denmark back in forty six. And I guess even before that, the State Department wanted to buy Greenland and Iceland in 1867. So this has kind of been a thought process. But a lot of people say, you know, the president really wanted this, yes, for the strategic military angle and the natural resources, but also to put that feather in his cap. He wanted this as part of his legacy. So the whole purpose of the trip was for two nations to talk about similar concerns like trade and developments within the Arctic. So this was kind of just an idea he was spitballing. For those who may not know, Greenland is self-ruled, so it formally remains part of the Kingdom of Denmark and relies on Denmark for capital, but it's 60,000-some people living there pretty much just like handles itself on its own. My understanding is that Denmark did invite the president initially, and he was uh, set to meet the queen there also. And now everything kind of gets derailed (laughs) because of this. And beyond that, even the questions of, you know, I guess you're just toying with the idea, but when you're talking about realities, how expensive would this be? Greenland relies on Denmark for major, major subsidies. And I guess that's also what spurred the conversation is that Denmark was having financial problems because they pour so much money in there. So it seems like a very expensive property for the United States to buy also. But the president positions himself as a real estate guy. And this is how he views it as a deal. Right. And, you know, it didn't help even further on Sunday when, you know, White House economic advisor kind of chimed in on Fox News Sunday when he was talking about how the purchase was possibly, you know, a developing conversation. And he was joking around that Trump knows a thing or two about buying real estate. So it was the whole thing had just kind of snowballed right into this week of people becoming confused and angry and just like more confused regarding President Trump's comments and research into the idea. But at the same time, you know, I do think it's very interesting how one of the the politicians that happened to tweet out this week had said something about how the United States and Denmark are two nations that are pretty friendly with each other. And we shouldn't really shy away from that. We should still kind of get back to that. You know, yes, it's hard to believe and it's kind of shocking. But at the same time, these are two nations that have been pretty friendly with each other. And, you know, let's try and keep it that way. Marisa Fernandez, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
One of the more interesting stories of the week has to do with internet and faster speeds. Americans are spending more and more money on faster internet speeds on the promise of faster load times for your videos, higher quality streaming. But is it really worth it? Recent tests done by the Wall Street Journal shows that a typical household doesn't use most of their bandwidth while streaming and only get marginal gains from upgrading their speeds. Shalini Ramachandran, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joined us for why upgrading your bandwidth might not be the best choice. We were just coming off working off this premise that the cable and phone companies that sell us our internet are marketing faster speeds and saying that you're going to be able to stream better and do all the things that you do on the internet um, better with faster speeds. So we just wanted to ask, is that true? And so what we did was we got roughly 50 of our journalists to uh, participate in this trial and this sort of panel. And what we we studied it was their actual performance of these various streaming applications. And one major test that we did was just ask everybody to push their internet connection to the, the, I guess, really try to break the internet connection by streaming a bunch of things at once. So you had people, I mean, there was like seven to eight different devices running at the same time streaming, uh, whatever it is, shows, YouTube videos, a bunch of things. And and one group of our panelists who were streaming seven things at once only had used a median speed of 7.1 megabits per second. And many and these panelists were the ones who were paying for speeds of 100 megabits per second or more. So this is when they were trying to break their connection. It really was only about seven seven megabits per second average. So, so you can you can kind of you know extrapolate from there that it's it's kind of difficult to max out your bandwidth. So even if you're paying for higher bandwidth, higher speeds, on average, you're really using the the same amount as everybody else. A lot. It seems to me that a lot of times, what it is is, you know, these services like Netflix and Hulu, you know, they have they compress videos, they do all sorts of stuff. I mean, they're optimizing the bandwidth use on their end. So it's not like you're really going to ma- you know use your your entire total at any one point. That's exactly right. And all, all of these major tech companies that are some of our biggest video providers today with streaming, they do a ton of things just to compress their videos in a smart way because they, their major goal is that they want anybody to be watching their stuff. So whether you're on a slow or fast connection. So the net result is that they're often giving you pretty good quality videos at a pretty low speed rate. And we also just found that there's not that much difference in quality. So in resolution and in startup time, we call like from you this, the minute you, or the, the second you press play to when you actually see something stream. We weren't able to see many significant differences in quality between people paying for less than 55 megabits per second and people paying for more than 250 megabits per second. In the article for, of all the people that were uh, testing this from the Wall Street Journal, you subscribe to one of the lower tiers, 15 megabits per second. That's and right. and uh, you didn't, you, I think you had about seven different streams going as well and didn't really did. have any issues with quality. Right. And in fact, it was sort of by design. I, I wanted to try and see, well, let me get the slowest speed tier I can <laughs> and see what happens. <laughs> and I, I was streaming seven things at once and uh, didn't see any difference in quality. And what it, what did what we did see in the data is that I used a significant chunk of my bandwidth for uh, so I used 15 megabits per second or more for a significant chunk of that test, but it didn't translate into any quality deficiencies. In what case would it be really good to have or to pay for extra fast speeds? 
I think the the cases that that at least the companies talked about when they when we reached out to them for comment, the big browning providers, they were talking about um, ultra HD gaming. So it's called 4K. Mm-hmm. Not not a lot of people use this stuff today, but it's something that some a small sector section of people do. Um, but even 4K streams, just for for some context, um, they use maybe like 25, 35 megabits per second when when they're really going all at once on a 4K capable device. Now. Not many people have those. So just just the context, you know, what we're talking about are speeds being marketed to of 200, 300, 400 gigabit. So it's still well within the range um, if you wanted to be streaming 4K and doing all that once. Now, what they're saying is, well, what if you're streaming like several 4K things at once or like, you know, had, you know, connected home with lots and lots and lots of devices. But again, for some context, um, a connected home device is like to turn off your lights over the Internet is going to be a small, tiny, tiny request. If you have like maybe hundreds of devices or something, you might potentially, you know, hit up against the manager. But these aren't all going at the same time. So it's really that's that's really the, the the crux of the thing is: Are you doing a bunch of things that are hugely high bandwidth at the same time? And not a lot of people are doing that. So okay. So then, what happens then when you get like that spinning wheel, or you do get that lag in your your TV show that you're watching, and it kind of has to buffer again or something? Mm-hmm. If it's not, if it doesn't have to do with the fast speed, the faster speed there, what else is happening then? There are a lot of the way so the the video comes to you across the internet, and you know my colleague has a good my colleague who I wrote the story with has a great analogy for this, which is that paying for a faster speed to improve your streaming video is like paying for a bigger driveway in hopes you'll get to work faster because basically there's a lot there's a whole lot of road beyond your little driveway, which is what you're sort of paying your internet service provider for. There may be a ser- server outage from the place where your streaming video is coming from, or it may be going through a number of internet middlemen because your provider is connecting to other networks to get to, 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 to have the connection to the place wherever your streaming video is coming from. So there are, there are many sort of factors along the way, along the guts of the internet that could be making a difference. Then just even in your home, there are, or closer to home, there are, there are these other factors like your um, your neighbor's son may be downloading a bunch of video games, and you're, in most networks, um, you're sharing bandwidth with with a bunch of your right. neighbors. So that could be affecting it. Yeah, Another thing that you guys made yeah. a great video on the Wall Street Journal uh, that kind of shows how this whole thing works and the little bottlenecks right. and and yeah that annoying kid next door <laughs> downloading the video <laughs> games uh, so i suggest everybody go look at that because it makes it so simple to understand and, and you know the first thing that you do when you have a problem you think things are going slow you call your internet service provider the first thing they want to do is sell you these faster speeds but it's not necessarily all worth it uh did you guys identify kind of that sweet spot deal like how much you the average person or the average household really needs yeah, so what our researchers say is, you know, beyond 100 megabits per second, you're going to get limited benefits, you know, very marginal benefits. Now, that's even a conservative. I mean, like, like you said, I, I have 15, and 
we're doing just fine. Now, there's a, a two adults in my household and a baby, so it's not the same as if you had like seven people in your household all streaming. So, but basically, even if you did, our, our researchers say beyond 100, you're, you're not going to get much benefit. Um, so that's that's sort of like the, the sweet spot that um, we're, that they were identifying. The lower, so that's the 100 is the conservative end, but you know, even 50 is probably good for most people. Shalini Ramachandran, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.